If you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, one of the things I enjoy to read on the side are biography, autobiographies or stories of soldiers in war, especially of the most recent conflicts, the last 10 years, for several reasons, uh, but one of, of which is to know what it is that men of my generation are younger what they are enduring, what they're going through as they come back um, and they move back into the area and the community. There have been quite a few that have come out that have been uh, notorious, I think, uh, because the movie's been made. Uh, it's one um, by Marcus Luttrell, written the book, and the movie was made after him, The Lone Survivor, uh, in which he goes through great detail uh, about the uh, training that's done for the Navy SEALs. And you kind of go through the hardships as he's go at length to describe the process that was used from his birth uh, through military to get him to the point of the battle in Afghanistan. And so you, you're really impressed with all that they endure. But one of the things that these men talk about over and over again, that though they've gone through this training for warfare, they're preparing for the enemy, and much of their uh, adult life and, and childhood even has been in preparation for this, but there's nothing that quite prepares them like the experience themselves of going through some circumstance and realizing that someone is trying to kill them. When someone is shooting and aiming at you that has a galvanizing effect on all of their preparation, all of their uh, mental aspects to, to get them moving like no other SEAL training has done. Just the experience of someone shooting at you, which I could imagine would have quite an effect. One of the things that we don't realize that the army realizes is that they're preparing for war. As a Christian, we seem to lose that sense that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. And reading the book of Acts helps us to realize, wow, there is opposition. There is a spiritual attack and there is power involved and lives and physical lives are at stake and spiritual lives are at stake as well. And so we need to read the book of Acts. We need to read about believers in other countries of the world. We need to see the martyrs that are taking place. We need to be aware of this to understand that there is spiritual battle that happens just as much here in America. And that maybe, time, maybe we don't realize it because we are not engaged in the battle. And so I'm going to ask that we read Acts chapter 17. And, and we're going to observe... Uh, just the people's reaction to Paul uh, as they are going from place to place. Uh, I assure you, Paul is very familiar with the concept of spiritual warfare as he has uh, been ushered away from Philippi. And Philippi is the place where he was beat unjustly, treated badly, put in prison. Uh, but there still, God worked miracles. And so they're seeing the miracles taking place, and, and as he's going from Philippi, he's going to the next place. And you remember, why is he there? The whole reason he's there is because they sensed a call from God to go to this region of Macedonia. It was a vision that Paul had of a man calling out to him, come present the gospel to us. 
And so I don't know if Paul ever is looking for this man he saw in this vision that he had, but nonetheless, that's why they're there. They are there because of God's call. And we're looking to see what God's call looks like. It looks like battle. It looks like persecution. It hurts. But that's where they're at. So let's read Acts chapter 17. And we're going to read this. And I'm going to just kind of give some commentary as we go. And then give some concluding uh, thoughts about opposition to the gospel. Uh, And so Acts chapter 17. Uh, In honor of this being God's word, let's stand as we read this together. And we're going to read through verse 15. We're going to stop at uh, at Athens. We're not going to go with Paul to Athens this morning. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Polina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them before therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. You may be seated. So in verse 1, you kind of, again, this is where that map comes in handy. It might be in the back of your Bible. Uh, this is, if you don't ever use it now, I don't know when you'd ever use it, okay? Uh, so this, he's talking about the second missionary journey. And so if you're looking at the map in the back of your Bible, uh, that's where they're at. Uh, so he has sailed from Troas to to the Macedonia area, went to Philippi, uh, and now he is traveling. And if you look on your map, it looks not very far, but it's actually 100 miles uh, from Philippi to where he ends up in Thessalonica. He passes through two major cities in doing so. Uh, We don't really know why. He doesn't spend time there. Uh, It could be because of his uh, method of ministry, which was to go to the synagogues uh, as a basis of operations. And so he finds one at Thessalonica, which was kind of the capital of the area uh, where they were at. And so you see verse 2, his custom. Uh, this is where he, what he usually does. He goes to the Jews. Uh, this is part of his own philosophy of ministry. He goes there, reasons with them, and the Bible tells us that in the process of three weeks, he is meeting with them, teaching them about Jesus 
uh, being the Messiah and necessary to suffer and to die. And so he's presenting the gospel to them. He's just saying this is who Jesus is. He is Messiah. This is why he died on the cross. This is where Scripture speaks to this. And this is where he rose again as well. Uh, And so uh, you have that element that's going on. And so then you see the result of this. Notice verse 4. You see this customary happen. Some of them were persuaded. Some of them were devout Greeks. So some of the Jews, some of the Gentiles that were seeking after God comes to know the Lord. And you see this over and over again, verse 4, and not a few of the leading women. You see this again in Berea, that some of the the noble women or the high-born women, high-standing in verse 12. Also, I, I think it's interesting of note that every time he preaches the gospel, you have the effect of many women the Bible seems to make an illusion that many women come to the gospel uh, when they hear about Jesus Christ. I think that still happens today. As men, as you look around, um, I would say that you see not a few women, as the text says. All right, And I, I think you see that in churches across the board. Uh, I think it's interesting to note when you see the rapid rise of the Christian faith and just uh, just a few generations, how it starts with a few handful to take over the Roman Empire. Uh, and we read from the beginning that at the beginning, there were always a group of women. And every time the gospel went out, the, the women were influential in sharing the gospel. This still happens today. Uh, women, you are used by God. You use your gifts, your abilities, and it's leveraged to in, increase the ministry. Many times Paul, he came from Philippi to Thessalonica because of the gifts of the Philippians. In fact, the book of Philippians was written as a thank you note to the church of Philippi for sending him along the way. And you see Lydia was one of the first ones uh, in Philippi to, uh, to start and help start the church. So women, I would just encourage you, you still are very much a factor in how the gospel is spread uh, I, would, I could speak from experience. Uh, just the effect here in Nightdale, uh, if we want to see the gospel, the influence of this church impact in our, our area, it's usually done through a woman of influence. So what do I mean by a woman of influence? A woman that has a lot of friends and is not afraid to talk about the gospel, not afraid to talk about the church, and not afraid of inviting people. Uh, it makes a huge difference. Uh, it used to be that, they would, that we would meet at the Wells. We don't do that anymore. We meet at Target. And we meet it on Facebook. Okay? Just, just kind of how it happens nowadays. Uh, and so uh, if we have people that are making a big deal at Target uh, or that shopping center are making a big deal online, uh, it has effect. It, it does. And so that's kind of how it worked back then. It still works that, that way today. Uh, and so uh, you have this result of people coming to the Lord. But notice verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous. It's the same way how it was with Jesus in Jerusalem. The religious Jews were jealous. So I wanted to just bring out the opposition of the gospel. You need to understand that the motivation, the first, first thing to understand about the opposition to the gospel, that the motivation for the opposition to the gospel is power. It is always power. It is still very much today an, a battle over power. Who is going to influence who? 
All right, so the motivation of the gospel, of, of, of the gospel opposition, is power today. So here it is, the Jews were jealous. Why? Because now Paul has a greater influence, a greater audience than these who were teaching the law. And so now that motivation is uh, uh, moving them. Notice what goes on as we read this, how they, they persuade others. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, which, interesting enough, is the Greek equivalent to the word Jesus, or Joshua. If you've got the name Jason, it is the Greek equivalent to Joshua or Jesus. Uh, and so he evidently becomes part of the group that's following Paul and what he's teaching. And so they seek to bring him out to the crowd, and they could not find him. And so they dragged him. And some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, notice what they say. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What a reputation. They are worldwide rabble-rousers. All right? I remember uh, in 2010, we had a, a series of mission trips. Uh, Mike Griffin was part of it. I was a part of it. And it, it was, we were visiting um, Yemen, Egypt, Britain for a little bit, Belarus. So all these little places we were stopping in. And you remember what 2012 was as far as worldwide, what was going on? Wouldn't you know it? Every one of those places, something major happens within a few weeks. I mean, even Britain had these student protestings that was going on uh, of rights in some of the places we walked. We had uh, bombings that took place in Belarus. And, of course, in Yemen and in Egypt was, was the Arab Spring. Um, and I was kidding. Mike said, Mike, what is it, man? Everywhere you go, it's like everything just falls apart. <laughs> I can't really say anything about that anymore, you know, after being in Nepal and it's like the earthquakes, I was like, man, good night. What, what seems to be coincidence for us was very intentional for Paul. Everywhere they went, society went in an upheaval. They were known for this. Christians in America are not so much known for that as much. It's starting to become that way again. But to say, you guys and what you teach are turning the world upside down. I just love that reputation a little bit. Uh, and so, uh, interesting enough, in AD 50, which is about the time that this has taken place, Claudius uh, sent out an edict in which he expelled all Jews from Rome because of the riots they would cause. So the Jews are not well received at this day and time. So when this happens, the, the uh, opposition are saying the right things. You guys, you know, you're the ones that are causing all this problem. And so they were saying the right terminology, and you see what else they say in verse 7. And Jason has received him, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, this is the era of the Pax Romana, all right? You historians know this. This is where a lot of trade, a lot of language, a lot of things are being spread because of this peace that was put on the region of the Roman Empire by force. Rome had the best military might, and so they established a peace by force. And so it's called the Pax Romana, in which you see things progress because of this. But it was, the, the rule of the law basically is, there is no other God, there is no other rule higher than Caesar. 
and so therefore there is this peace. In fact, there is an oath that they were acquired. This dates back to Caesar Augustus, so somewhere around 3 BC. And let me just read this, this oath to you that I found. They have been required to uh, swear this. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children, and descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought, that in whatsoever concerns them I will spare neither body nor soul nor life nor children, that whenever see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea. So the words they're using are triggers. They're, they're decreeing something else besides Caesar Augustus. All right? Now, you need to understand, we, obviously we don't worship Caesar anymore. But there are things that we worship in America. And the thing about the Christian gospel is it's very much counter to the American ideal. And if you're going to be serious about following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is going to put you at odds, counter to the age that we live in. You see, the gospel is not a product of a culture. If it was a product of a culture, then there would be some culture in which it fits at home. But it doesn't really matter what culture you, you go in. Some people say, well, this is a product of where you're born and raised. Listen, the, the gospel is a counter to the American culture. It is a counter to the Arabic culture. You see, we, we kind of get hung up on, on, on this one, one way for salvation, really, that's so narrow. There's just, what about everyone else? And the Arabic people would be hung up of, really, God's going to give mercy? God's going to forgive you? I don't think so. That's not the Allah we know. And so there is always, in every culture, a counter that is found in the gospel. And so when we are saying that we follow Jesus Christ, there is going to be the society in which we live, people uprising saying, they're going against the mold. They're going against what causes uh, unity and tolerance among us. And Jesus himself said that when the gospel comes, it's not come to bring peace. It's come to bring a sword, to divide between a father and their son, a mother and the daughter, and brother against brother. That is the effect of the gospel still. It brings division. And so here they are, and they're realizing this. And verse 8, And the people in the city's authorities were disturbed. When they heard these things, and when they had taken money and security from Jason Rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And these Jews were more noble. All right, so, so you understand what's happened. They had to get away. From Thessalonica, the heat was getting too strong, and the brothers, the Christian brothers and sisters, were used to send them away. And so, uh, Paul's been following this uh, major route so far. He takes a de- detour away from this major route to this place called Berea that was in the foothills. But there, he finds a group of people, a small group of people of Jews that were listening to what he says. And notice what they do: they read the scriptures. The Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they didn't just take Paul at his word. They said, okay, let's read the scriptures. In every church today, almost, you will find a central class still called Bereans. Somehow we miss that here at Green Pines. I don't, did there used to be a class called Bereans? And, and the reason is because they read this text, and they, that's, that's what we want to be. 
We want to read the Bible, we want to hear what they're saying, and ask the question, is this really true? And that's still very much what we need to do today. Just because it's me, just because there's someone that you know a name for, doesn't mean that you don't read the text for yourself and ask, hey, is this true? I'm a man and I will mess up my interpretation. You're a man and you are, you're a woman and you also mess up the interpretation. And, but there needs to be a collective aspect of us reading it together and learning from one another. And so that's what the Bereans are doing. But notice what happens. Things are starting to happen. Well, but then you see in verse 12, you got again, many are believing, including women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from the Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. All right, so you remember, the, the nature or the point of opposition, the motivation is power. There is going to be always an argument of who shapes the worldview. Okay? But the next thing in line with that is that the goal of opposition isn't just power, but conversion. See, those who are opposed to the gospel, it's not enough for them to say, well, I'm, I'm going to be opposed to the gospel. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. They never settle there. There is a desire to get others to believe the same as them. Okay? So sometimes you'll go in a conversation and you will share your testimony and you'll share the gospel and they will, and they will say, well, that's great for you. No, which... Just keep it right there in your own world. Don't, don't present that to me. And then there's usually a follow-up statement that goes something like this. Yeah, I think that people ought to believe whatever they want to believe. And that's fine for people to believe that, but don't push their faith on someone else. In fact, that's the great sin today, isn't it? For someone to push their faith onto someone else. But understand when someone says that, what are they doing as they say that? Are they not pushing their worldview on you as they're saying that? You, you shouldn't push your Christian faith on, well, what are you doing to me right now? Aren't you pushing that worldview on me? You see, you can't stop pushing a worldview. Everybody is exerting our worldview and no one's just sitting there thinking, I'm just going to keep it to myself. Everyone is trying to convert somebody to their way of thinking. We can't avoid that. That's happening. And so the gospel, or the opposition to the gospel is still doing the same. It's funny how you have people who are atheists and are agnostic, which, which means they, they don't know. Atheists are saying, no, there is no God. Agnostic is saying, I don't know if there is or isn't a God. But it's amazing how militant... That is. I mean, you'll have movies about it. You'll have books written about it. Do you know there is even an atheist church nowadays? They like the stuff that we do. They just don't like what we believe in. I don't know what they sing. <laughs> It'd be interesting to know what they sing. Um, but they meet together, and they have fellowships, and they eat, and they encourage, and they try to do good things for one another. Uh, but there's this this sense of 
Yeah, I'm going to be an atheist and I'm going to try to persuade others to do the same. I'm going to be agnostic and I'm going to persuade others to be, I'm going to write books. In fact, they, you, and <laughs> it's amazing. In most universities, if you go to the religion department, you will find at least one atheist teaching. Teaching divinity or Old Testament or every, almost every, I, I've, I'm making kind of an absolute statement, but majority of public universities, if you go out there, you're going to find an atheist in the religious department. Why are they there? Why are they wasting their time? Why are they doing this in this area called religion? Because there is a need to influence, of bring out power of converting. Now, notice the extent that happens here. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they didn't just say, well, that, you know, I'm glad we kicked them out. No, there was within them... They came there too, agitating and stirring up the words. So this is about 50 miles away. Berea is about 50 miles away from Thessalonica. That's not a day trip. All right? They're motivated. They will go as far as Paul goes. There is an opposition to the gospel. And you need to understand, the motivation is there. The determination is there to silence the voice of the gospel because the gospel is offensive. It is saying that you do not determine, you do not determine what is good. Do you realize the gospel is is based on that? You do not determine what is good. You know what the, the... the very first sin, what, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. They, there was a sense of knowing what good and evil was because God determined it. But when they ate of that, they were saying, I'm going to be divorced of God determining it. I'm going to determine what is good and evil. And the gospel goes back and says, no, you do not determine what is good anymore. You are a sinner. You are, in fact, evil. And there must be an act of God to forgive you. No one wants to hear that. Everyone wants to determine what good is. All I got to do is present to you the Vanity Fair magazine cover. All right, for those of you who don't know, that's, um, you know, a, a man is presented as a woman and says, um, call me Caitlin. At the heart of it is this ability of saying, I determine what is good. I determine what is evil. I determine everything, including my gender. And so against all what seems to be common sense, there is a celebration of this. To say, yeah, you are who you say you are. Celebrate that. The gospel says, no. You're not who you say you are. You're determined by God. And that's, that's what it is. It's to say God determines things and determines what is good and evil. And he's called certain things of which you do sin. So there is opposition to that. And it's going to be determined opposition. Notice they go to the same lengths Paul goes. Who's more determined in your life, in your sphere? Your desire to share the gospel, to glorify God, or the enemy's opposition? Let me just say to you, if you ever tell yourself, 
I will, I will share the gospel. I will speak for the Lord. I will talk about the Lord. I will live for the Lord unless... And you list out certain conditions of which you would say, I won't follow the Lord there. You can rest assured that that setup's going to be there. Basically, you're telling Satan, hey, you know what? This is what you're going to have to do to get me to compromise. Satan so said, okay, I can do that. There has to be a decision beforehand in your heart to say, I will follow God. I will I'll love him. I will live for him. Come what may. And the world wants very much for you to just to not talk about Jesus. It will let you be. The world will let you be if you have a conviction whereby you don't talk about Jesus. Life will be smooth. I remember when it hit me in college and the classroom. I'd already been there two or three years, enough for me to know the people around me in my field of major in, in communication. And it was a communication class of which a guy was presenting, one of the professors was presenting a group of people he had studied, a religious group that did not believe in hell. And he said they were extremely happy, joyful people. And then he went on and described what the biblical, might, a biblical image of, of hell. And he knew that I was a Christian and me and my buddy were there. And he just had the nerve to in the middle of the class, after describing hell, look at me, ask me directly, do you believe that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that you're going to go to hell like I described? I felt totally exposed for several reasons. One of which, man, no one here ever knew that I believed that. And they know that I'm a Christian. And they know that I know them. And some of them I've talked to. And some of them, many of them, I have not talked to them about Jesus Christ. What does that say about my thoughts of them? And now I'm going to be made as a fool. What do I do? I really had no choice at that point. See, the die had already been cast. I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's what. Listen, how would it make a difference if people knew what you believed and you hadn't shared the gospel? William Penn, in one of his videos, who's a, a, a known atheist, made this statement, though. He said, you know, that I respect the person who gives me the Bible. Though I don't believe in the gospel, I do not believe in God, I respect the fact that he cared enough for me to share this with me and that he believes it. So you see the nature of the gospel opposition is conversion. But you see something else. I encourage you as you read this passage and you see what Paul and Silas go through in Thessalonica, then in Berea, his, his trip is, is stopped short, so he has to write a letter because his trip is, is cut off short. He writes a letter. We know it as the book of 1 Thessalonians. Read it. It's really good after hearing and knowing what's going on. And I love the fact that what Satan used, God used for my benefit and your benefit to increase our faith by reading this book of 1 Thessalonians, this letter. But one of the things that he writes in this he says in chapter 2, verse 17 and 20, 
He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus is coming? Is it not you? For you are glory and joy. As he looks at this time, Saul sums it up and says, this was Satan behind this. And no one likes to talk about, well, you know, they just called me Satan. <laughs> Paul does that. He doesn't call certain leaders and politicians in the city Satan, but he realized that the source of opposition is spiritual. You need to understand that as well. The source of gospel of opposition in our life is spiritual. There is a satanic work involved in our society, in our culture, and around us. One of the things I just got convicted about is just, you know, I have a tendency, like most of you, just go quickly to the emails, go quickly to the texts and messages, and quickly to the social media. And based on surveys um, done recently, 75 to 80% of you do the same thing first thing in the morning. Um, But the thing is, a lot of the reasons we do so are are selfish. What's going on in the world? Maybe I'll know something more than someone else, um, and I won't look like the, the idiot. Or maybe something's been said about me, and I need to know what's being said about me. But have you ever thought about what if bad things happen in the world? Or what if bad things are said about you? How do you deal with that? You see, you see the thing is that I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with is understanding that what my go-to is not giving me strength. It's not giving me what I need to deal with in the day, first thing in the morning, of Scripture, of prayer, of considering who God is, what He says. Understanding that there is a spiritual enemy at work that's trying to silence me and to silence Christ working in me. And so there is a source of the gospel opposition, and it is spiritual. It is satanic. And so... He says something else in 1 Thessalonians. As you read in chapter 3, the next few verses, he says this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind to Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, having tempted you in, your, in our labor, would be in vain. The act of gospel opposition is promised. He's, he told them while he was there, we're destined for this. He wrote a letter back saying, I told you this was going to happen. Jesus told us this was going to happen. The act of gospel opposition is promised. I could not, I shared this with you after we had the baptism of, of my son and then uh, David and Kira. It was that day, that night, that we got news of, of the Egyptian Christians that were uh, beheaded by uh, uh, extreme uh, Muslims. And I just thought, wow, you know, the day that you see these children in the faith 
baptized, set apart, and you realize what you've set the course toward. And it wasn't me that did it, but you, you realize when you see someone come to know the Lord, and as I look at you now, and you look around, and you see brothers and sisters in the faith, I know that as I look at you, you will be opposed spiritually and sometimes mortally in our life to silence us. That God has called us to hard opposition in this world. It's promised us. He himself demonstrated it for us and said, in this world you will have... Anybody know that? (laughs) Trouble. In this world you will have trouble. But fear not, for I have overcome this world. When you see the little children here, do you understand that if we're raising them up and we're teaching them to, to know Jesus Christ as Savior Lord, we are raising our teenagers, we want to raise our children up to say, follow Jesus wherever He calls you. Go to the ends of the world. I want our church to raise up missionaries, to raise up people who will make disciples, who will go around the world. But do you know that when we're raising up uh, the, the cute little children singing here in their dresses and their sweaters and their dress clothes, and that that may one day end into orange jumpsuits? It is promised. Of course, that's the extreme image. But it certainly looked like laughter, mockery, scorn. Say, your influence is no longer needed in America. You live by a tired old system. By a book of morals written 2,000 years ago that is irrelevant today. That's the voice of the age we live. It is the opposition. So what do we do with that? I, I went to Thessalon- Thessalonians to say, well, Paul, what did you do with this? Chapter 1, verse 4 through 8. Therefore, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Asia. And for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Asia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So Paul shared his life. You know what kind of manner I lived among you. Share your life. The good, the bad, the ugly, because the power is not found in your life. The power is found in the gospel in which you hope in. Some of you say, well, I don't have a life to encourage anyone. I don't either. But I have a gospel that talks about Jesus saving us from all our sins. And so when people see that I sin, all I'm doing is setting up the gospel. (laughs) It's a win-win. Yeah, I'm sinning. I've got that tendency. But God loves me anyway. And he's come to redeem me and buy me back. And so that's the power that we have. Share your life. You present the gospel. He said, we presented the gospel. Our gospel came to you. Not only in word. So it did come in word. There must be not just our persuasive arguments, but this is what the gospel is. It's not your works. It's not your ability. It's not your your conviction to do what's right. It is that God's done it for you. Do you understand that? It's not by your religious practices that Jesus died for your sins. He's given us hope. He's given us life. He's removed shame. And it's all an act of Jesus. 
present the gospel. And then he trusted in the Holy Spirit's power. He said, this didn't come just in word, but it came in power. This is why it is so critical for us to be under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. This is the way of being filled with the Spirit to say, I'm submitting to the Holy Spirit in all things that he tells me to do. How do you do with a world that is against you, that is trying to work out the power from out from underneath, that is trying to make converts to their way of silencing you? What do you do with that? You share your life, you present the gospel, you trust in the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Yeah, they've got power for a while, but there's a higher power at work. Submit to that. And also tells us, don't live to be cool. Don't live to be liked. You'll never be cool enough. You'll never be liked enough to satisfy you. If you worship beauty, you will never be beautiful enough and you'll always view yourself as ugly. Don't live for beauty. Don't live to be liked. Don't live to be cool. Live for something greater, higher. Live for Jesus. He already loves you. He already accepts you. He already regards you as beautiful. Find your hope there. Let's pray.